God created the world in six days. On the very last day of creation, on day six, God created land animals and he created man. Uh, today, we're going to focus just on the things related to land animals to see how God uh, put that together without taking billions of years to evolve them. He created them as he said he would. Uh, that means that the earth did not require billions of years in order to come about. Uh, God created the world and everything in it and over uh, a little over 6,000 years ago. Uh, and this is the first half of what he did on day six, starting in Genesis chapter one, verse 24. It says, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, I want to point out that God was very specific about how the animals came about. He said, let the earth bring forth. He didn't say, let the fish crawl out onto land and become. Uh, he told the, the earth to, to bring forth land animals and he formed them out of the earth just like he will do with uh, the very first man, Adam, which you get details on in Genesis chapter 2. And the animals were made uh, according to their kinds. You keep seeing that again and again. It comes up 10 times in the chapter, uh, according to their kinds. They were specially created. They weren't in evolved into each other. There's no transitional phase or anything like that. God made them all from the earth, each one being an original design and able to reproduce according to that design. And that includes every kind of land-based creature from domesticated animals uh, wild animals and even insects, I think, would be con uh, considered land creatures. Um, I don't think that they're lumped in with birds and, uh, when God created the fish and the birds. I think the insects might be more of the land-based animals. Now, I want to point out that there are many animals that have features that are helpful to mankind but are not necessary for, uh, for the survival of that animal. And the reason why I'm going to point this out is because uh, these animals were designed by God seemingly for the benefit of mankind. Uh, they have features that aren't helpful on an evolutionary basis. Evolution is, is very energy efficient and uh, creatures would only have the features that make them uh, more survivable, more adaptable to survive. But animals uh, sometimes seem to be designed by God for mankind. An example of that would be the cow. Cows uh, seem to have been especially designed to serve the needs of humanity. Uh, they're fully domesticated. They're easily bred. They can live in almost any environment that people can live in. They can graze on lots of different kinds of plants and therefore are relatively inexpensive to feed and to maintain. Almost like every other part of the cow, sorry, almost every part of the cow can be used for food, including the bones, which are oftentimes boiled for nutrients and stuff, and hooves, which uh, you can boil to take out collagen, create uh, gelatin. Their hide makes durable leather. Uh, all in all, like when you take the cow, the, you know every every part of it and the way that it's it's raised and uh, and taken care of, they all seem to be God's gracious gift to humanity. Another animal that seems specially designed for maximum usefulness to man is the sheep. Right? Sheep can graze on plants uh, that other animals won't touch. Most kinds of sheep can't survive in the wild. They're passive, they're timid, they're easily frightened, they're defenseless, they have terrible vision, there are lots of predators, they have no instinctive sense of direction, they are easily lost, which is why they, they stick together all the time. Uh, the thick lanolin-rich wool that they, that they grow, it catches a lot of dirt, 
And uh, when that dirt gets wet, it turns into mud, but the mud doesn't dry and flake off and come out. So the wool gets very heavy if it's not cleaned by a human being. Uh, and if the wool at the rear isn't kept short, then uh, it becomes a breeding ground for maggots and other vermin. Sheep always thrive best when cared for by a shepherd. Uh, they're among the most dependent of all animals. They're one of the few creatures on the earth that just can't survive without the intervention of mankind. Sheep only live about eight years, but they breed quickly, which is valuable for human life because they provide plenty of meat and milk. Uh, Their wool makes energy-efficient clothing for hot and cold weather. It's breathable, fire-resistant, warm even when wet. Um, In modern times, sheep play an important role in medical research, uh, and sheep need to... Uh, sheep need to be taken care of by people, but people don't actually need sheep. So it's, a, it, it's not an even relationship. Um, sheep need people to take care of them. We don't need them, uh, but we do benefit greatly from them. Uh, it's, it seems to be as though God made sheep for our benefit. Camels, too, are another such creature. Camels are sturdy creatures. They're, they're known mostly for their usefulness to humanity. Uh, they're unclean for food. Um, for the Jews, because of uh, a law stated in Leviticus 11, verse 4, but they're valuable working animals. They can carry thousands of pounds in the desert where water is scarce because they can absorb and retain large quantities of water. Uh, The camel can drink around 30 gallons of water in 10 minutes and then go for more than two and a half weeks without drinking again. Their bodies recycle water even from their own dung, so camel droppings can be burned as fuel immediately once it's passed. They're, uh, they're so efficient at pulling the water back out from their waste that their urine is kind of like a jelly substance sometimes instead of an actual full watery liquid. Um, their body uh, can withstand dehydration incredibly well. They can lose up to 40% of their total body weight and still survive. Uh, the hump of the camel... The, the camel's hump, it doesn't, it's not used to store water, which is like a this popular, not true uh, piece of information. Um, the, the hump on the back of the camel stores fat as a food reserve, and it insulates uh, from heat and solar radiation. Their body temperature can adjust with, with uh, the environment, enabling it to withstand daytime desert heat and the desert nighttime cold. Uh, the camel is a perfect work animal to assist mankind in hostile desert environments. Again, it seems like that's one of the animals that just has been designed for the benefit of humanity. Then you have uh, creatures like ants. Ants can aerate and fertilize the soil, pollinate plants, and, and they perform a host of other ecological house cleaning services. Ants are so vital that if all the ants on Earth died, all of Earth's land-based ecosystems would quickly collapse and fail. Uh, these features in ants are, of course, related to their survival, but they point to the impossibility of evolution. Ants and plant life are so dependent on each other that one could not have possibly evolved before the other. When on the evolutionary timetable, it seems as though they are millions of years apart uh, in terms of when they evolved, but that's solved if plants are created on day three and if ants are created on day six, at that point, then uh, it would be it would be fine for the ants to then start to aerate the soil, fertilize the soil, pollinate the plants, etc. Well, the big uh, the big issue with uh, with animals in terms of uh, arguing for evolution versus creationism, uh, one or the other, and it, it comes down really to this this concept of homologous structures. When we look at animals, and not just land animals. Um, 
animals in the air and in the in the water, we notice that we share a lot of very similar features. Things look alike. Why do most animals have two eyes? Why do most of them have four limbs? Either four legs or two arms and two legs or two wings and two legs? Why do skeletons of animals look so similar? Why are we all made out of the same basic ingredients of blood and muscle and nerves? Uh, Why aren't some animals made of rock and some made of pure light energy? Uh, Why don't we have living cubes of gelatin? This gets us into the issue of homologous structures, which is a, a term to describe how our structures seem so similar or homologous. And so that study of that, the, uh, the um, homology, has been cited in textbooks as supposed proof of evolution. And uh, and the reason why I'm going back to this evolution thing is because if evolution's true, then things needed millions of years to survive. If things needed millions of years to survive, uh, to, to, uh, survive and evolve, uh, if things needed millions of years... In order to do that, then that's how we start dating the soil that they're found in, and we start dating, you know, uh, all, all the different ways that we look at the world. Uh, and then we go, oh, it must have taken billions of years for all of these things to to naturally occur, and then eventually to accidentally evolve. But if evolution's not true, then uh, then we don't need to expand the timetable of how long the universe has existed. Now, homology has been used in textbooks as supposed proof of evolution. Darwin and other people saw how, uh, how human beings and animals looked kind of alike and, uh, and said it was critically important evidence for evolution. Uh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll put up a graphic here. If Austin can just put up a picture here of uh, a human, uh, human arm, a horse's leg, uh, a cat's uh, foreleg, four Um, a bat's wing, a bird's wing, um, and a whale, the the fin, right? A man's hand is for grasping, a mole's hand is for digging, a horse's leg, a a porpoise's fin, a bat's wing. Uh, These are all constructed on the same pattern with similar bones in the same relative positions. And that points to a relationship between these species, it seems like. We must have evolved from a common ancestor, says naturalism. The seven bones in in the human neck correspond with the same seven bones, uh, which are much larger neck bones in, say, the giraffe. And so they are homologues. Uh, they, they're, they're homologous. And so those, the, the bones in, in the human are homologues to the bones uh, of uh, a giraffe. The seven cer- uh, cervical vertebrae must be a trait then that was, uh, that was possessed by a, a, cre- a common ancestor creature from, from which we evolved that uh, some ancestor creature had seven bones in its neck and then the giraffe came from that creature and eventually human beings came from that creature. That's, that's the understanding of it. Um, if, if that's the case, though, you know, we, we do have to ask certain questions. Like, why is it that bats and whales have so much in common anatomically with mice and men? Why do virtually all vertebrate forelimbs have the same pendidactyl or five-fingered design. It seems to point to evolution. It seems to point to common ancestry. And so that was a, a big hang-up for me anyway when I was in high school. Um, before, I, uh, before I believed what the Bible said, um, especially about creation, uh, this, this was maybe the, uh, the biggest obstacle to me even giving an ear to the gospel. Because it seemed like uh, the creation account was wrong, and it was homologous structures that 
that convinced me that evolution must be right. Because to my eyes, it seems obvious that uh, we all came from common ancestry. But homology doesn't prove evolution. You can say that it suggests evolution, but it certainly doesn't prove it. That's a, a different thing. Suggesting and proving is different. Simply because different species share similar features does not prove a common ancestor. Um, Why wouldn't God use similar features in different species? Right? Uh, If if he's an artist, what prevents him from using uh, a similar artistic style, right? Especially, not just for artistry, but don't all of these bones and structures serve the same general kinds of functions and motions? Uh, When you look at cars, airplanes, bicycles, and roller skates, they all have round tires. Why? Well, because the round tire is the best shape for rolling. Like you, you wouldn't want a square tire. You wouldn't want a triangular tire. A round tire is the best shape for rolling. Now, d- when you see all those different tires, does that mean that all of those vehicles came from a common ancestor vehicle? Not really. It, uh, it, that's, that's not really how it came about. In the same way, most kidneys in different species are very similar. Why? Well, because the kidney in all the different species, they all do the same thing. It filters the blood. And so it's, it's built with the same kind of hardware. In the example of the forelimbs of humans and horses and whales, you know, the arm, the, the picture that you just saw, uh, they're thought to be all constructed on the same pattern with similar bones and positions because of a common ancestor. But they resemble each other because they have similar function and or design constraints, right? The similar shape and position doesn't mean a common ancestor. It means a common function. The only reason to think it's from common ancestry is to is if you were to observe such a thing. But we've never seen anything evolve. There's, uh, there's nothing that says conclusively that that's the way it is. And so we can't speak adamantly, concretely, with any degree of certainty, that that's the way that things came about. Homology is, is uh, as a theologian, I, I, I see it as scientific eisegesis. Uh, I, it's where you start with a conclusion and force information to then corroborate it and prove it, and then dismiss all and ignore the information that uh, disagrees with the conclusion that you like. You start with the conclusion, and then you investigate, and you only take the information that you prefer. If you examine fossils, you can't, you can't tell uncles and nephews from fathers and sons, right? When you see a, a, a group of, uh, of fossils, uh, you, you just get to, to see the, what they look like and stuff. You can't tell uncles and nephews from fathers and sons. Uh, and in the same way, there's no positive evidence of ancestry, when you find fossils, you can't prove ancestry. Only inferences. You can only just try to infer uh, what, from what you're looking at. Lack of evidence, at best, is just postulation. It's certainly not proof. Although many similarities exist in almost all animal structures, structural variations are actually the norm. Often the variations in animals don't confer survival advantage. It's just variety, um, which implies artistic design, not genetic adaptation. Uh, What I mean by that, uh, there are examples in human beings, genetic uh, variables in, uh, in certain things that don't help with survival at all, which makes us wonder why do these variables even exist? But uh, some of the examples of, of genetic uh, variables in, in humans um, are things like attached earlobes versus detached 
earlobes, right? There's a gene for that. The ability to roll your tongue, to make a, a taco tongue, right? Uh, there's a gene for that. Hitchhiker's thumb. Some people can bend their thumb back to like a 60 degree angle kind of a thing. And uh, that's hitchhiker's thumb. Some people have that. Some people don't. Interlacing fingers. Normally the right thumb goes over the left. Some people can uh, have this gene where their left goes over the right more naturally. A widow's peak in, uh, in the hair. That's, that's something genetic. Now these are all variable things that have no advantage for survival whatsoever. And so the question becomes, why do those variations exist? And it seems as though variation is the norm and it's not necessarily for survival. Um, major problem with homology theory is that, uh, that many structures appear similar only on a superficial basis, only to the eyes. And yet they differ significantly in things like anatomy and physiology. Uh, think of wings, right? Birds and bats and insects and reptiles, uh, certain reptiles like pterodactyls, okay? They have wings. They all have wings. Uh, so it looks like they had a common ancestor because, oh, look, uh, the, the insect has a wing. The bird has a wing. You know, the, uh, the, the bat has a wing. So they must have all come from the same thing. Uh, and that's what it looks like to our eyes. But birds have feathers as, as their modification for flight. Bats have skin membranes. And then insects have cuticles. That's what their, their wings are made of. Um, reptiles, it'd be skin, feathers, uh, combination of, of sorts. Um, but they are anatomically, physiologically very different from one another. So they're not really homologous structures. They're, uh, they're referred to more as analogous structures structures. So what evolutionists do is they realize that these things could not have come from the same ancestor because they're so very different in their modalities. And so they say that wings evolved at least four different times, uh, coincidentally, you know, these guys evolved these kinds of wings, these guys evolved these kinds of wings, these call, uh, these kinds of wings over here and these over there. They, and they call that convergent evolution. It, uh, it's not a conclusion from evidence as much as it is a, a hypothesized explanation in order to keep defending evolution. You know, they say, oh, when things look similar, it's a common ancestor. You go, wait, but these look similar, but they're not, sim they're not a common ancestor for sure. And they go, oh, convergent evolution. It just looks like they're similar, but, it, but it's not. And so now it begins to, to contradict itself. When it looks similar, it means common ancestor. But sometimes things look similar and it's not common ancestor. Uh, and it becomes a very arbitrary kind of pick of which, which traits you put together and say they, they must be common and they must not. The Tasmanian tiger is a marsupial that lives in Australia, as all marsupials do, I think. Um, but co compare the Tasmanian tiger to a dog. Uh, dogs are all mammals. Tasmanian tiger is a marsupial, right? They look remarkably alike. They look like they're the same genus or species or something. Um, and yet they're not. Geographical separation and evidence from the fossil record says they could never have evolved from a common ancestor. So what convergent evolution says uh, is that uh, they have this same looking animal that just happened to evolve twice in different areas. But the suggestion that two animals that look remarkably alike uh, having evolved independently, this is a major problem for evolution. It is, by its own practice, a denial of, of homology, which says that things that look alike must have a common ancestor. Now, these things look identical, and yet they're saying, no, but they, they could, we know that they never could have evolved 
uh, from the same common ancestor. So we often see creatures with homologous structures that evolutionists don't think came from a common answer, uh, ancestor. And so they just, they just keep saying convergent evolution whenever that happens. Uh, by throwing a term at it, then it kind of gets them off the hook. They say, you know, it's homologous structures. That's proof of evolution. And when you have a disproof, it's just convergent evolution. Homology when they want the species to be related. Convergent evolution when they don't. Flippers and dolphins, which are mammals, and streamlined fins in fish, which are teleos, uh, they're very similar, but that doesn't fit the evolutionist chart. Dolphins and, and fish have different ancestors, and therefore it must have been conver convergent evolution, right? The eye. Uh, how many species have eyes? Species from very, very different uh, different ancestors according to uh, evolution. The eye is hypothesized to have evolved independently as many as 60 different times. Given the infinitesimal, infinitesimally small probability of the evolution of a single eye or organism, for that matter, multiple evolutions of it is indefensible. Uh, it becomes even more astronomically and infinitesimally small. Evolutionists point to certain organs in human bodies that seem useless or less developed, and they uh, and they say it's remnants of an ancestor. You know, so the, uh, they they point to things. They they call them vestigial organs, uh, and they used to point to over 180 such structures in humans and say we have all these different vestigial organs that are useless now. They're just leftover genetic uh, products from early ancestors. But as our anatomical knowledge increases, that list has disappeared. Moreover, if organs can't be proved to be vestigial, they don't provide support for evolution. Uh, I'm sorry, if, if organs can be proved to be vestigial, they don't provide support for evolution. The, uh, they provide support for what's called de-evolution, reverse evolution. Right? You have to prove that new and useful organs, which we, we call nascent organs, are developing today and that a process exists where that happens. And yet we have, no, uh, we have no developing nascent organs in our bodies right now. You know, we look at the, the human body and there's nothing that's uh, developing into a new organ. We're not in any stage of evolution to develop something new. Po pointing at organs and saying, oh, that must have been useful a long time ago, but is less useful now. That's not a scientific deduction. There's, uh, that's not a conclusion made from facts. That's just, that, that's just a, a, an arbitrary statement being made in order to try to corroborate uh, a, a, a worldview of evolution. Evidence for the development of new organs or those in the process of evolving would be evidence of evolution. We don't have any of that. As of now, no evidence of any nascent organ exists. Another major problem in homology is embryology. Organs and structures which appear identical or very similar in different kinds of animals develop from different embryonic cells. Uh, the, the alimentary canal, that's the, that's the tube that goes from mouth to anus, right? You, you know, every, every living thing is basically a donut. It's, there's a hole that goes from your mouth to, uh, to your anus. That's, that's your alimentary canal, right? That's formed from different embryonic parts when you're comparing things like sharks to frogs to birds and to reptiles. They, uh, they form that alimentary canal from different parts of the embryo. Even the forelimbs that we looked at, you know, the, uh, the arms and wings and stuff and the fins of the whales, uh, when we looked at that picture, they form from different body segments in different species, 
Uh, evolution can't explain how forelimbs of different animals grow from different body parts if they're from a common ancestor. Why would that happen? The forelimbs of a newt and a lizard and a human, right? They all develop from different parts of the trunk of an embryo or a blastocyst. So if it came from a common ancestor, it wouldn't make sense that we're developing it from different parts of the embryo. The kidney of fish and amphibia come from entirely different tissue. The uh, uh, mesonephros... Um, then for reptiles and mammals, which is the metanephros. You could go on about biochemistry and genetics. Uh, you can read the articles if you want, included in the bibli- bibliography and stuff. But the, the short versions go like this, okay, for biochemistry. All living things use the same biochemical systems, right? Uh, plants, animals, protists. Uh, we all use the same kind of protein, uh, br- uh, protein processing engines, in our biochemistry, things that photosynthesize use the same photosynthesis kind of stuff, uh, chlorophyll A. Uh, if they evolved for billions of years, the big question is why didn't that change? Their identicalness testifies against evolution because evolution would have evolved something else by this time. There would have been variation. In the field of genetics, the short story on that is homologous structures among different animals are often produced or programmed by different genes entirely. Uh, Genetic sequence is a better indicator of ancestry than appearance, and the genes say that they don't carry a common ancestry. Even though it ends up looking the same, different genes on the the chromosomes are are actually activating that and causing these limbs to grow, which means they did not come from a common ancestor. So you go through all the stuff. You go through anatomy and embryology and biochemistry and, uh, and genetics. And, you know, you go through all of it. Uh, and then just, just simple math. And it says that uh, even though things look the same, you look at the bones and it goes, oh, they look so similar. It must have been a common ancestor. That's what Darwin thought because he did not have an education in, um, in microbiology and in biochemistry and embryology and anatomy and physiology. He didn't. But if he did he would see that they cannot come from the same ancestor. They had different genes, different, uh, different structures, etc. Well, I think the most common uh, issue that comes up with land animals, though, when, when it says that God created land animals, um, people ask, did he create dinosaurs on day six? And I, I think that the, the very obvious answer is yes, he created every land animal on day six. And if the earth is thousands of years old, then, at, then dinosaurs would have existed then, you know, because uh, one of the viewpoints is that God created fossils. He didn't create dinosaurs, you know, like he put the fossils in the ground for us to find, but then like they were never actually living creatures. And I, I think that's not a great theory. Uh, I don't think God's lying to us like that. You know, he didn't put bones in the ground. He didn't put the evidence of death before death existed. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, the, the, you know, the, you, you either are, uh, an old earth theorist, someone who believes that the earth is billions of years old, or you're a young earth theorist who believes that the earth is thousands of years old, as the Bible says. Christians who believe in old earth, uh, they think that the Bible does not mention dinosaurs because dinosaurs died millions of years ago, uh, as they were told in school. Uh, The men who wrote the Bible could never have seen living dinosaurs, and so they never mention living dinosaurs. Uh, but people who believe in young earth theory, uh, people who hold to a young earth, according to the biblical description of creation, they agree that the Bible does mention dinosaurs without actually using the word dinosaur 
because that word didn't exist when the authors were writing it. They weren't writing in English anyway. Um, instead, it uses the, the Hebrew word tanin, which uh, is a translate. It's translated a few different ways in our English Bibles. Uh, tanin appears to have been uh, like some sort of a giant reptile. When you have giant reptiles, they just called it tanin. And uh, sometimes it's translated sea monster or serpent, or mostly it gets translated as dragon. Uh, these creatures are mentioned nearly 30 times in the Old Testament and were found both on land and in the water. So there were different types of tanin. Now, the Bible also describes creatures that some scholars believe may have been dinosaurs. Uh, one of them is Rahab or Rahab. Um, it's a sea creature of some sort mentioned in Job 9, Job 26, Psalm 87, Psalm 89, Isaiah 30, Isaiah 51. Might have been a real creature or might have been more a mythical creature that was being re- referenced uh, artistically, uh, figuratively. Might have been. We, and we can't really tell based on the context entirely. Uh, it's, that one's hard to say. But Job chapter 40 talks about something called the behemoth. And the behemoth might have been uh, a creature that, uh, well, it is a creature that in its description resembles some kind of a dinosaur. The behemoth is said to be the mightiest of all God's creatures, a giant whose tail is likened to a cedar tree. That's what, uh, I'm going off the Job 40 uh, description here. It eats grass, says verse 15. Its uh, strength is in its hips and its belly, says verse 16. Its bones are like bronze and its limbs are like iron, says verse 18. So this is a very large, very strong, very durable creature. Uh, It says that he's the first or or the greatest or the chief of the works of God. That's verse 19. Um, And so by when it says he's the first of God's works, that's to mean in rank, not in chronology, right? So he wasn't the first one ever created. He's the first as in like, he's, he's number one when it comes to all of God's creation. He's the best. Some scholars have tried to identify the behemoth as either an elephant or a hippopotamus Neither of them have tree-like tails. Their tails are not like cedar trees. Their tails are, they, they look like feathers on string. You know, that that's not a very threatening picture. Uh, but when you get to certain kinds of dinosaurs, certain types of sauropods, like the Brachiosaurus or the Diplodocus, they had huge tails. They were 10 times heavier than elephants. Uh, they fit the description when you hear the description of behemoth. Another creature that resembles some kind of dinosaur is a large aquatic creature called Leviathan. Leviathan means coiled or twisted. Uh, And Isaiah 27 says that it's a fast-moving and squirming serpent. And in that chapter, God is saying that just as God will slay Leviathan someday, he will also uh, slay or end the wicked kingdoms of the earth. Uh, Leviathan shows up in Job 3, Job 41, Psalm 74, Psalm 104, and Isaiah 27. It's a real creature that people kept their distance from. They did not want to get close to this thing. In Job 41, you get the best description of the creature's sheer size and viciousness. Uh, It's frightening. It cannot be tamed. It is best left alone. It's graceful, but protected with scales. Its chest is just as impenetrable as its back. It has fearsome teeth. No weapon can defeat it. Even mighty men are terrified of it. It can't be caged. It breaks through iron like straw. It's the true king of beasts. Uh, Some people tried to say that Leviathan is a crocodile or a whale or a shark. None of those fit the 
totality of the descriptive details. It seems more likely that Leviathan is a plesiosaurus, or at least something close to that. God's whole point is that Leviathan is unstoppable, uncontrollable, and then God's saying, but I can stop him and I can control him. I'm the one that put him there. Nearly every ancient civilization has some sort of art depicting giant reptilian creatures. And the reason why I'm getting into this is because if dinosaurs were created on day six and human beings were created on day six, that means that dinosaurs and human beings existed at the same time. And we have to explore that. Is that a possibility? Do we have any evidence for that? Because all we hear in school is that dinosaurs died out millions of years ago. And so we we get the evolutionary timetable. We don't actually get any other uh, information given to us. But every civilization on the planet has some sort of art depicting giant reptilian creatures. Either uh, they're dinosaurs. uh, They don't use the word dinosaurs because they don't speak English. They're ancient civilizations. But uh, sometimes they use words like dragon in their language and stuff. We have petroglyphs and artifacts and even little clay figurines found in North America that resemble modern depictions of dinosaurs. Uh, if you look at rock carvings in South America, they accurately depict dinosaurs. We'll put some pictures up. Uh, I want you to look at this picture of a stegosaurus that's been carved into, uh, into some kind of a rock. Uh, there's a picture of a triceratops in this next one. There's a bunch of dinosaurs, but right in the middle there, uh, it appears to be a triceratops. Uh, on this next one, it seems to be a man riding a triceratops. And then on this next one, it's a man riding maybe what looks like a diplodocus. Uh, one after that, it's a man riding a pterodactyl. And the one after that, it seems a creature that resembles very much like a Tyrannosaurus rex. Now, my question is, how did these ancient peoples draw these creatures accurately if they never saw them? I mean, if we're the ones that discovered the fossils and used our understanding of biology in order to reverse engineer what we supposed was their appearance, how did these people know what they looked like, including like the, the kind of textures of their skin, whether or not they had scales or whatever? How did they get the skin right? How did they know whether or not it was covered with feathers? It's, it's interesting because they're accurate, and yet they wouldn't have the scientific prowess to determine those conclusions. Roman mosaics, Mayan pottery, Babylonian city walls, they all testify to man's universal fascination with these creatures, and that's all over the globe. Combine that with the fossilized human footprints with dinosaurs, uh, you know, found next to dinosaurs in, in the same in the same uh, specimens. You get that in North America and in West Central Asia. We talked about that already. But when you have all that, is it possible that mankind lived with dinosaurs? The evidence actually points to yes. Not just possible. It seems like it's the likely conclusion. Dinosaurs are just large reptiles. And when you wonder, like, how did they get that large? How come they're not that large anymore? Well, there's a funny thing about reptiles. Reptiles are the only animals that never stop growing. What happens if you have a watery canopy over the earth that diffracts ultraviolet radiation, which kind of uh, throws off the, the aging effect allowing men to live for hundreds of years, which is why you see in the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, and even in uh, chapters 10 and 11, you, you see these genealogies where people live for hundreds of years. 
900 plus years. Uh, if that happened for mankind, what would happen to reptiles that lived that long? Reptiles never stop growing. So they would just get huge. Uh, why do we have no giant reptiles after the flood? Well, because they don't live long enough to get as big as, as uh, what they were before the flood. And now the, you know, the aging effect and all that stuff, that, that's going to take a toll. They're going to die before they get that huge. But if reptiles did get that large before the flood, then the next real uh, question is, well, could you fit huge creatures like that in the ark? Uh, and you, you have to go like, you know, how can you fit all the different dinosaur species in the ark? Well, okay, here's the thing. There are only about 600 hypothesized species of dinosaurs ever named. Many were named only from a single piece of one bone, and they thought that's a whole new dinosaur. So it's very likely that many of the species were really of the same genus or species or the same kind. But many dinosaurs were very small, and it wouldn't make sense to bring the full-size adult ones into the ark anyway. Uh, Noah probably brought the, you know, the younger ones on board. Um, and so he probably brought maybe around 100 dinosaurs on board the ark, since most dinosaurs, by the way, were water creatures. And he didn't bring water creatures onto the ark. He brought land creatures onto the ark. So the ones brought on the ark would have been, uh, would have been about 100, maybe in species. And they would have averaged around the size of a cow. And if you, if you reference our Genesis sermon on chapter 6 and 7 called Noah and the Flood, uh, you'll find that there was plenty of space for, uh, for all those creatures plus more. But many, of cre- uh, many creatures wouldn't have survived after the flood. The, the climate change was drastic, right? Um, and we know that up to 2 million species are thought to have died and gone extinct in the history of the, of the world due to, clo- uh, to uh, global climate change from a tropical climate to a semi-arid climate. That's exactly what happened at the flood. And so if you're a gigantic, cold-blooded reptile, you can only survive in very warm tropical weather. An ice age would have killed you. And after a flood, when you get this endothermic effect that, that inaugurates this ice age, that would have been way too cold for a creature that size. They would have died out. Uh, the other naturalist theory, by the way, uh, well, there are a couple of theories that naturalists will say, you know, what killed the dinosaurs. They say a giant meteor hit the earth. Uh, and we have no crater to, uh, to point to, to say that that was true. No meteor to point to that. We have all the meteors that hit the earth for the past 6,000 years. And then underneath that, those layers of rock, there are none. No meteors whatsoever, right? And so we have, uh, all the meteors, by the way, are very small. They're like, you know, they're small. They fit in your hand. Uh, but we don't have a, a giant meteor that was the size of Texas that knocked the earth and tilted its axis and all that stuff. That, that just never happened. We don't have any evidence of that. That's a theory that has no information, or no evidence to, uh, to back it up. So it's a, it's a shot in the dark kind of a guess. Um, it wasn't a giant meteor that hit the earth then, especially because that would have knocked us off our, our uh, rotational axis and orbit from the sun. The other naturalist theory, though, is that there was worldwide volcanic activity. And I would say that that's somewhat accurate, right? Because that is exactly what happened during the flood. There was major volcanic and seismic and tectonic activity taking place from the, the fountains of the great deep. The, uh, the ones that sur- the, the dinosaurs then would have died out during, uh, during the flood, but the ones that survived, they don't live as long, and so they don't grow as big. And so we got... 
Big reptiles today, just not as big as something like a Tyrannosaurus rex. If there were others that survived, it seems from ancient civilization stories that they were relentlessly hunted by man. Because you have all these different tales in, uh, in, in the different civilizations of how fascinated and how obsessed mankind was about hunting down these dragons and slaying them, these giant reptile creatures. Job himself, he lived shortly after the flood. He, he lived very early on, somewhere in the, in the time of the patriarchs like Abraham. Uh, so whatever behemoth was, it lived during his time too. If it was a diplodocus, or, uh, then it lived during his time. It just no longer exists today. Well, I'm, I'm pretty much out of time, but uh, I, I want to wrap this up on, on the issue of animals before we get into the issue of man next time. But scripture teaches that there was no death prior to Adam's fall, right? Uh, death is the result of sin. Remember, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we'll put it up. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what, what that's saying there is the curse of sin has adversely affect all of creation, not just human beings, right? Death came into the world and affected the whole world. It makes it at the end, some people say at the end of that verse, it sounds like death just spread to human beings, death spread to all men. That's not, that's not uh, a limitation on death. Death didn't only affect human beings. Death affected all of creation, which is why in chapter 8, verse 20 of Romans, the apostle Paul continues to say, for the creation creation, the, the universe, heavens and the earth, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what chapter eight is doing is it's saying that our bodies, we die, and then God will give us new bodies that will endure for eternity and all creation is waiting for that same thing because they were cursed or the creation was cursed just like our bodies were. That uh, the creation was cursed to death and is waiting to be uh, given new life that will endure forever. That's why there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Creation itself will be redeemed because creation itself has been subjected to death. So all creation was affected by Adam's sin. The curse of death came upon all living things, which certainly includes animals. The reason why I bring that up is uh, before Adam sinned, none of the animals died. And uh, related to that is because none of the animals were killing each other, which means none of the animals were, were hunting each other. None of the animals were carnivores. Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, it says, To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. All animals ate plants. They were all herbivores. Scripture also teaches that when Jesus returns, he establishes a 1,000-year kingdom, a millennial kingdom. And the whole... Uh, th that whole period of time during that millennial kingdom, all animals will be herbivores again. 
Look at uh, Isaiah 11, verse 6. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, uh, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. None of the animals will be dangerous. None of them will be, uh, will be hunters, killers, or carnivores. The world will end with all animals being herbivores because that's how the world began. No animal was killing another animal at all for food or for any other reason. Animals didn't die. There was no such thing as survival of the fittest because there was no such thing as death of the unfit. It was survival of everything because nothing died. There was no evolution. It was a world without death. It was a world without evolution. It was a world where human beings lived with animals in safety and stewardship. It was paradise. It was very good. That's how God created it. That's how it was. All right, let's pray. God, it's a, it, it, it's a huge reworking to, uh, to take what you've said in your word and to compare it to everything that's taught in our schools today. I wish, Lord, that, uh, that the whole of the evidence would be presented not just the information that seems to corroborate evolutionary theory, but all those those very important uh, moments of of history and uh, and and discoveries and findings that point us to an understanding of an earth that's much younger than what we're told, one that does say that there was an intelligent design behind it all, which would force us to consider the existence of a divine creator. We hope, Lord, that, uh, that this information is something that we take to heart to know that, uh, that Genesis 1 is not a fairy tale. Uh, it's, not, it's not just wishful thinking, but that there's a body of information out there that is accessible to us, that we can see. There's understanding that we know of in our biochemistry and our genetics and our anatomy and physiology and all of our different fields of knowledge to equip us to know that there has been a masterful design behind all living creatures. That when you created land animals, they did not crawl out of the ocean. They were created out of the earth according to their kinds. And it was good. Thanks for teaching us this, Lord. And keep growing our minds. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.